I'll find it in a minute. I'm reading from the uh, New King James Version. We're reading the first five verses of uh, the Gospel of John, and then we'll move on to verse 15. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 15, sorry, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Take that off. Good morning. Uh, <clears throat> now for something completely different. This is not um, going to be a normal sermon. You have to be normal to present a normal sermon, so that sort of rules me out anyway. But um, this is an apologetic. And that doesn't mean that I'm saying sorry in a weak or ashamed way for what the Bible says. Apologetic comes from the Greek and means to speak in defence. So an apologetic is a sermon or an article which defends the truth of the scriptures and refutes false statements and criticisms. In an article in the Australian Presbyterian, the question was asked, how important is apologetics to evangelism? And the answer given was, very important. We need to learn how to defend the faith and answer people's questions and objections. It's not about winning arguments. Apologetics can help create a plausibility for the gospel, which enables people to consider it. An example of an apologetic sermon in the Bible is the address made by Paul to the philosophers in the Areopagus in Athens, that's in Acts 17. The result of that address was that some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Our reading uh, that we just heard said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So when we defend the scriptures, we defend the living word, Jesus Christ. Please just join me in prayer. Loving Father, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have noticed in the bulletin the, uh, the topic for this um, apologetic is Jesus laughed. You may also notice that next week, um, Ben's topic is, let the Lord be your dread. 
Now, I don't know whether this is a case of good cop, bad cop or not, but um, that, that, that will unfold, I dare say. So Jesus laughed. We know that Jesus wept. The Bible tells us that he did. But nowhere are we told that he laughed. So did he? I think I mentioned the old riddle a couple of weeks ago about um, how do you make God laugh? Telling your plans. Seriously, though, did Jesus laugh? Did he have a sense of humour? Did he ever make other people laugh? On a TV lifestyle program, the following graphic was shown, and it said, it is written in the Muslim holy book, the Quran, that he deserves paradise who makes his companions laugh. Whereas philosopher Alfred North Whitehead noted that the total absence of humour from the Bible is one of the most singular things in all literature. Andrew Denton is an award-winning writer, performer and producer and a highly intelligent person. In an episode of one of his TV programs, he said, I've read the Bible from cover to cover and there's not a single funny bit that I can see. Well, does it matter? Who cares if no one in the Bible laughed? Is humour that important? I reckon it is. I reckon it's a vital, indispensable part of life. Speaking at the University of Pretoria, Archbishop Desmond Tutu said that throughout biblical history, God showed a profound sense of humour in choosing persons and events that no human being would have thought suitable. In an article in uh, an educational magazine, The Practicing Administrator, Dr. Marie Jensen, who was uh, Assistant Director of the Board of Teacher Recognition in Queensland, wrote, humour not only offers the most effective tool for engaging and relating to followers, it can relieve our stress, defuse a situation, restore our equilibrium, promote trust and human bonding, deflate our pomposity, reveal our essential humanity, offer us new perspectives and help us soar above the mundane. Humour is an indispensable part of the dynamics of any group. Workers in an office, a school staff, a social club, a sporting team, a church, even a group of fishermen, as we shall hear later. It would be laughable to think of any group interacting without some element of humour being involved. And here are some facts about laughter. Laughter reduces stress. It burns calories, helps the immune system, improves respiration, and helps promote a positive attitude and outlook. Imagine a world without humour. What an imperfect and unhappy place it would be. Now, I'm getting to the Bible. Hang on there. We'll get there. The Bible tells us that every good and perfect 
gift is from the Father. And humour is surely a good and perfect gift. So how is it that there seems to be no humour in the Bible? How is it that we don't read anything about Jesus laughing? Well, we don't read about him sneezing or coughing or yawning, all of which as an ordinary human being he would have done. Cameron reminded us recently that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And Kristen and the children reminded us of that just a little while ago. His life in human form ran the gamut of human experiences and emotions. Of course he laughed. G.K. Chesterton, the English writer, wrote, unless a man is in part a humorist, he's only part a man. Being fully man, Jesus would have laughed with his family, laughed with his friends and laughed with his followers. To think otherwise would be laughable. But enough theorising, do I hear you say? And in the words of Eliza Doolittle demanding proof from Professor Higgins, you add, don't, look, don't talk of laugh, show me. No humour in the Bible, it may seem thus, but if you just read the words, but if you just read the words, but not if you read between the lines. Not if you remember that these were real people in real situations. Not if you soak in the atmosphere rather than looking at the bare events. For instance, Mal read to us, uh, no, he didn't. In the first reading from 1 Kings, we heard the end of this story about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to, con to a contest to prove the power of their God. Two sacrificial bulls were placed on piles of wood and the prophets of Baal began to call on their God to send down fire to light their sacrifice. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. They danced around the altar but there was no response. At noon, Elijah, tongue firmly in cheek, it would seem, began making comments such as, shout louder. Surely he's a god. Maybe he's deep in thought or busy or gone off on a trip somewhere. Go on, yell louder. Maybe he's taking a nap. That's a bit humorous, isn't it? In 1 Samuel, we read about David and an episode with Saul. Saul, in his jealousy, took 3,000 men to seek out David in the desert of Engedi. During the pursuit, Saul paused to go in, into a cave to relieve himself. David and his men happened to be hiding far back in the same cave. His men urged David to take the opportunity to get rid of Saul. David refused to harm the king, but in the darkness did creep up and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Later, and from a safe distance, outside the cave, 
David held up the piece of robe to show Saul that he had had the chance to kill him, but not the intention. Doesn't that give you a smile? There was Saul an arm's length from his quarry, but unaware of his presence. And then David revealed himself by holding up that piece of material. On the Emmaus Road, when Jesus, unrecognised, joined that distraught couple who were mourning his death, he patiently sought to expound the reason for the recent events, lovingly seeking to ease their distress. They didn't recognise him. But think about it. He must also have been suppressing a smile as he anticipated the moment when the penny would drop and they would realise who he was. And then there's Peter. The disciples knew each other pretty well. Some of them had fished together for years. And humour, usually good-natured, is common in such an association. You remember the time when Peter actually, but very briefly, walked on the water before taking his eyes off Jesus and beginning to sink. Now think about it. Tell me that there wouldn't have been times when after that, when they were out again fishing, that someone wouldn't have turned to, turned to Peter and said, Ah, oh, Peter, we forgot one of the nets. Just run back to the shore and get it for us. In Mark, we, uh, there's a little story of James and John asking about seating arrangements. James and John asked Jesus if they could sit one on his right hand and one on his left in the kingdom of heaven. Of course, Jesus wouldn't make such a promise. When the other disciples heard of that request, they were indignant and Jesus had to calm them. This could have led to festering and antagonism within the group and lasting disharmony. But it's not hard to picture Jesus using humour to counter this and maintain harmony while gently rebuking James and John. Just picture the group coming together sometime later to eat, perhaps, and Jesus looking them over, patting the seats on either side of him and saying, with a twinkle in his eye, now, who's going to come and sit here with me? Of course, we're very familiar with the feeding of the 5,000. With very little stretching of the imagination, it's possible to see in this story how Jesus may have used humour to gently rebuke his disciples without being hurtful. When the disciples wanted Jesus to send the crowd away and to find food, he, to test their faith, told them to give the crowd something to eat. And then he rescued them from embarrassment by miraculously feeding the crowd with the five loaves and the two fish. Of course, you know how many baskets were left over? Yeah, 12. Ever notice the significance of that number? 
How many disciples were there? Twelve. What a coincidence. One basket of leftovers for each disciple. Let's picture the scene. The 12 disciples standing before Jesus, each looking down rather sheepishly at the basket at their feet because they doubted. And Jesus saying to them with a gentle smile, what a shame we weren't able to give all those poor people something to eat. Expanding our thinking to allow Jesus a sense of humour adds a dimension to his humanity and to our understanding of how he may have dealt with people and situations. It can thus be a valuable guide for us in our dealings with people and in helping us to understand our situations. Sometimes having a sense of humour helps very much. He's a personal experience. Joyce and I were going to Brisbane to visit some friends. And Joyce's mum was coming with us because she was going on to see friends further north. She was severely restricted by arthritis and we had to get her onto a flight out of Brisbane the next day. She was stressing about it. We had a strict deadline to meet. Now, I'm not in the habit of praying for motor cars, but in those circumstances, I prayed. I prayed that our ageing secondhand um, Ford Fairlane um, wouldn't let us down. And all went well till our first petrol stop. After filling up at the tiny outback town, the car wouldn't stop. Oh, Lord, this wasn't part of the plan. This is my mother-in-law I'm trying to look after here. Please. However, after sulking for a while, the engine did start again. Now, I know you, Rob, you're saying, oh, probably flooded, something like that, overheated, vapour lock. I was just mumbling, please, Lord. We stopped later to eat. I wasn't going to turn the engine off. When we reached our overnight accommodation, I took a deep breath and very reluctantly switched off the engine. Sleep was fitful. At times, I resorted to the well-tried axiom, why pray when you can panic? As I thought of how upset Joyce's mum would be if she missed her plane. What was I worried about? Next morning, all went well. The car started and the plane was met. We had a week with friends, drove about to various places, finally met the plane when it came back. Picked up Joyce's mum and had an uneventful trip back home to New South Wales. The next morning, I got up and went out to the carport. 
And under the car was this great mass of rusty, gunky metal and a big pool of rusty water. The radiator had literally dropped its bundle. And I swear that the bumper bar was twisted in a very nasty smile. As I headed for the phone to call the mechanic, it's quite possible I heard God softly, smilingly say, I'm sorry, my son, it had to happen. But remember, your prayer was answered. The Bible has many critics, many learned and intelligent people. To them, the message of the cross is foolishness. But in 1 Corinthians, we read, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Satan loves to sow doubt in people's minds, to challenge the truth, to scorn the word and the living word. We can defend the gospel. We can show that the Bible is full of real people. It is history, not a novel, not a work of fiction. And we can show that Christ was a real person, fully man, yet, as Ben stressed in a recent sermon, the king of everything. And the final word on laughter goes to Martin Luther, who said, if you're not allowed to laugh in heaven, I don't want to go there. Uh, we're going to sing now, and the song is uh, The Perfect Wisdom of Our God. And please note the... Um, the words of verse 2. The matchless wisdom of his ways that mark the path of righteousness, his word a lamp unto my feet, his spirit teaching and guiding me, and oh the mystery of the cross that God should suffer for the lost so that the fool might shame the wise and all the glory might go to Christ. <laughs>